Thank you very much, Jill. Can I say a, a couple of things just by way of clearing my throat, as it were, this morning? Uh, first, thank you for praying, if you were, uh, from the green sheet, uh, for our time away last week, 24 hours, as staff and church wardens. I think it went very well. Uh, we're very grateful to you for your prayers, and I hope it'll prove fruitful. Uh, secondly, on this Sunday when students return, it's perhaps worth saying that I myself am a university student undertaking a part-time master's. Many of you knew that, I think. But I'm going to be using a week of leave this coming week in study. So uh, that's just to let you know that emails won't get much response until next Sunday. I will be here for prayer focus, as I said earlier, on the Wednesday. Well, let's get to the business of hand and pray together, if we may. Lord God, we come to uh, St. Paul, to that great student of the Holy Scriptures. Once his studies led him the wrong way, and then they led him the right way because you turned him round. And we pray for all of us that we may not put our confidence in our own capacity for study or the mere fact that we can read, but may be taught by you to have a humble heart before your spirit that he may guide us. And so guide us this morning, we pray, by your spirit. Amen. Well, what is the truth of the gospel? That's the question in front of us this morning. It's the issue that lies at the heart of our passage. It's in chapter 2 and verse 14 of Galatians. Please turn to page 1169. The truth of the gospel is an issue that never passes its sell-by date. It's always important for the people of God to know the gospel of God. We need to know it for ourselves, and we need to know what truth lies at the heart of God's mission through you and me. John and Tamsin need to know it as they raise Elizabeth in the faith into which we just baptized her. And we get there today via a story. Let me summarize uh, for those of you who've not been here uh, for this series so far in Galatians. Paul is defending his gospel as the gospel the good news he's preached as the only good news there is. First, he said that he was taught the good news directly by Jesus. It didn't come from man. Then he's pointed out that the only time he's had any interaction with uh, the other apostles in Jerusalem led to their approving his message. And now, he's going to say that actually when the gospel in Jerusalem wobbled... The gospel in his mouth did not. And all along, it's because he wants us to be clear, wants the Galatian church to be clear as he's going on to this letter, I want you to know the truth of the gospel. So first of all, what happened? And we find that in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2. He begins with Peter. You may remember from the book of the Acts that Peter had a vision of a sheet filled with foods of all kinds, some clean for Jews to eat, some unclean. And God's voice came from heaven telling him it was now permissible 
to eat any of the foods. The food laws were abolished. Why is that such a big deal? Well, because in the hundred or so years before Jesus, great waves of change and disruption had flowed through Jewish life. They'd rebelled against their rulers. They'd conducted great reforms against corruption in their own midst. And those reforms focused on three key big issues. One was the food laws. The second was keeping the Sabbath holy. And the third was circumcision. So if the food laws are abolished, as Peter discovered, then it's actually the abolishing of the boundary lines between Jew and Gentile. And that's exactly what it meant for Peter, who realized at that point that God had accepted the Gentiles and had sent the good news of Jesus to them as well as to the Jews. And so it became Peter's practice ever since then to eat with Gentiles. See, the food laws weren't just about avoiding certain foods. They were about avoiding even the people who eat certain foods, the non-Jews. Jews were forbidden from eating with Gentiles or in their homes. Now, Peter came to understand through that vision. The boundaries are down. God's mercy is therefore open to all. So, verse 12 of our reading, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Paul says, that's good. You got it. But this was, in a way, going a little further than Jerusalem had allowed for. In the, uh, the verses, uh, what, just before it, 6 through to 10, there's a report of what happened when the apostles and Paul interacted. The apostles in Jerusalem had accepted Peter's ministry is to the Jews, Paul's ministry is to the Gentiles. They hadn't thought, really, about what would happen if they ever encountered one another. So, perhaps hearing of what was going on in Antioch, big city up north, now in Syria, James, the brother of Jesus, a huge figure in the life of the early church, sent men to Antioch. Perhaps it was to investigate, perhaps it was to rebuke, we don't know. But they came from Jerusalem to find out what was going on. And at that point, Peter gets it horribly, horribly wrong. He withdraws from table fellowship with Gentiles. What's important to register is that it was not because he grew convinced that he'd been wrong all along. He hadn't been wrong about the sheet and about what the sheet had meant. It was, says Paul, it was a hypocritical move. That is, Peter knew the truth. He knew that it said one thing, but he went on to do another. He knew he was allowed to eat with Gentiles, but he withdrew. And he did so for fear of what's called here, verse 12, the circumcision group. And we don't know who that is. But we can guess what might be happening. Imagine in Jerusalem. There's a small church of pretty... Uh, miserable uh, Christians. Uh, No doubt they were full of the right kind of joy and so on, but their circumstances were pretty miserable. They're surrounded by Jews who would regard them as a, a breakaway sect and want to suppress them. Now, if that, if those Jews who regard them already as a breakaway sect hear that this breakaway sect up in Antioch, up north, and dodgy things happen up north, 
Um, uh, it, if they hear that up north, funny things are going on and that Christians are eating with, uh, and that Jews are eating with Gentiles, well, they're going to oppress the local Jewish Christians in Jerusalem even more. Perhaps we know that the Jerusalem apostles had kind of got the point because we learn from uh, the very start of chapter 2 that they, they encountered, they met Titus, Paul's colleague. He was of a Greek background, he was Gentile, he was not circumcised, and the apostles in Jerusalem got it. They did not compel Titus to be circumcised, we learn. They'd got it, but maybe they were now coming under pressure. Maybe that was the circumcision group. Maybe they were now saying, look, we do understand, we have got the main point, but couldn't you just live it a little more quietly up north? Or maybe the circumcision group was a strict Jew, a group from among the 25,000 Jews that lived in Antioch at that time. We can't know. But the point is that it was fear of them, according to verse 12, that made Peter act as he did. It wasn't that he changed his mind. It may well not even have been a personal fear for himself. It may have been a, a fear about others that he felt protective towards. We don't have to think of wick- Peter as wicked. Anyway, that's what happened. But now we need to go on to why it mattered. And there's two reasons. First, there's the, the importance of the principle. If the food laws stay in place then the barriers between Jew and Gentile have not come down. Then what Jesus thought he was about is simply wrong. Then the good news all of them have believed is simply not good news at all. If the barriers remain in place, then the work of Christ is being denied. And that's why it's a fundamental issue about the truth of the gospel. Christ's sacrifice is not for all, if that's what it means. And if it's not for all, then it's not a sacrifice at all. That's why the truth of the gospel is at stake. It's the importance of the principle. Then there's the importance of the personnel. Peter is the, uh, the, the top dog, if I can put it that way, in the Jerusalem church. He's the one with the record. He's the one who uh, was dominant within the the group of uh, three that went around with Jesus. What Peter says goes. So when he withdraws from fellowship with Gentiles, then in the process, others do exactly the same, according to verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. And even Barnabas, we're told in 13, is led astray. If this challenge isn't nipped in the bud early, then the track of the gospel through the whole of the known world is actually put in peril. So Paul confronts Peter, not privately, but because the offense is public in front of them all, according to verse 14. If you, Peter, who have lived like a Gentile, who've got it since you knew the truth of the gospel... If you now go back to Jewish ways, you are forcing Gentiles to become Jews because you're saying the Jewish law is the only way to go, the only way to stay close to God. You are wrong, Peter. 
And then in verses 15 to 16, having heard what happened and why it mattered, we get to the heart of it. Let me uh, read that part to you. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. It goes round and round. You get three observings the law. He's trying to make a point that matters to him. And there's so much wrapped up in it. So let's do some unpacking. First, the word sinner. I, um, I discovered um, uh, in the week that if you go on uh, a slimming program, I'm not sure it's Weight Watchers or Slimming World, um, if you have a, uh, a biscuit more than you should in the general run of your diet, that biscuit is for you in that week termed your sin. See, it's all about food laws. Well, no, no, no. But that's what sin has become. Now, we come to church, so we think we know what sin is. We think sin is moral fault uh, when we kind of cross a line. But actually, uh, that's part, only part of it. it. The fact that Paul can uh, use a phrase like Gentile sinners uh, is a way of saying those are the same thing. By being a Gentile, you were already a sinner. It didn't mean you'd had a biscuit when you shouldn't have done. What it meant was that... Uh, the person who was not a sinner was the person living by the law of God. The law of God told you you should be circumcised. If you were a gentle, you were Gentile, you weren't circumcised. Therefore, if you were a Gentile, you are a sinner. It, it's not a moral category. It's a people category. Jews, the people of God over here. Sinners, the Gentiles, the not people of God over here. It's a people category. Not only a moral one. So says Paul in verse 15, we who are Jews guaranteed to be God's people in the right place, the right side of that line, we have come to understand that it's not the law that matters. That way, no one can be justified, verse 16. And that's the second term that I reckon needs some unpacking. And I say that because I see some potential for some damage here in the kind of thing we sometimes say, perhaps especially to children. And I know a number of you are helpers and leaders in our children and youth work. You come across a big word like justified in the Bible, you think, well, how am I going to explain that? And you say your phrase like, ooh, what does that mean? Ooh, it means just as if I'd never sinned. And there's something important there. But it can do us damage because actually we know we have. We are sinners. It doesn't feel like we've never sinned. Even once we follow Jesus, turn to follow Jesus, it still doesn't feel like we never sinned. And working backwards, we then start to wonder whether Jesus has actually done what was promised, has given us the mercy and grace, if he's supposed to leave us feeling like it's just as if we'd never sinned. The problem is, is actually a translational one. It's really hard to, to squeeze all the meaning that we need, and it's a big meaning, out of the word that ends up getting translated as justified. 
one part of the meaning that we get in English is to declare uh, righteous, to acquit. It's the finding of a judge, judge, just, justly, justice. It's the finding of a judge that you are not guilty. But the problem is the entire appeals structure of a civil law uh, nation is built on the assumption that when a judge declares you are not guilty, mostly he's probably, or she's probably right, but sometimes they're wrong. You might still be guilty. It's just they've declared you not guilty. And if that's what we're drawing on as language, it's not going to be helpful. Justified in Scripture means, in fact, that we are guilty, but we are pardoned, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, like it says in the hymn. We are given an entirely right standing with God, not an as-if standing, not a conditional standing, but a right standing. For the repentant thief on the cross on Good Friday, which would have held greater meaning? For Jesus to say, you'll be with me in paradise as one who never sinned, or to say, you'll be with me in paradise as one whose sin was real, but I have paid the price. Well, we've tried to unpack sinner. We've tried to unpack justified. Let's try finally within this section on by faith in Christ. It's there in verse 16. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Well, earlier on, I asked you, do you believe these things in in God the Father, in God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit? But faith in Christ is no matter of the head only, a dry agreement to some words on a screen. It is the full devotion of a heart that trusts entirely only in the person of Jesus Christ. Phil, can I borrow you? If you want to stand about there. So, if we lean upon Jesus with all our weight, thank you. If he gives way, we give way. We, d- we don't sort of stumble and recover as though we need him a bit, but fundamentally we can do it on our own strength. It is to trust in him completely and in his work. If Phil hadn't caught me, I would have been in trouble. And there was just that moment. Of... <laughs> it is to trust in him and his work, not in the things we do, the markers we observe, to keep us in the right with God. For God the just is satisfied, we sang, to look on him and pardon me. Not to say as if you never sinned, but say you did sin, but you are pardoned, you are forgiven, and you are put right with God. Now, finally, how are we going to use all that? Because Galatians, almost as much as, uh, possibly more than any other letter, is an exercise how to translate what was going on then to what on earth do we do with this stuff now. You can go from this reading. Perhaps we have gone from the reading like this. 
about justified and faith in Christ and so on. And you can go out into the world and mostly we will fall flat on our faces with it. Because people believe that they are okay with God by being good. Well, we think, well, that's the same. That's what the Jews were doing. And then we talk to them and we discover a minimal reaction. Occasionally, you will encounter someone with a Christian background who's wrapped up in guilt, and you can talk to them about what it means to be forgiven and to have a right standing with God. And you can watch the the penny dropping, the light going on, and that's fantastic. Mostly, it doesn't work. Why? Because it's fundamentally different. Jews believed there was a God, and that you really were okay by obedience to certain markers of their faith as God's people. Our friends, yours and mine, may not be so sure about God, but they lazily assume that if he's there, they must be okay with him because he's paid to be nice. But the laziness is the problem. The Jews knew they were sinners. Our friends do not. They believe that they are fine, really, even if not quite perfect. And the only thing that matters is the occasional biscuit. To get anywhere with this kind of argument, with our kind of friends, you'd have to convince them about God and sin first. And that doesn't happen. I have never met, not once have I ever met, the fully convinced person who knows that there is a God, a God that they believe in, and uh, uh, works incredibly hard to, uh, to convince that God that they are okay. Uh, uh, at least not within the kind of Western tradition. Yes, you might go to other faith positions and find that, but not within the Western tradition, and mostly that's where I'm evangelizing, to people who do not know there's any kind of God at all. So when we encounter this, we say, what do we do with it? Our friends don't believe in a God. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe there's any transgression. Well, we would be better to learn from verse 16. We have put our faith in Christ Jesus. The heart of it is put your trust in Jesus Christ. For Jews, that means in Jesus Christ as opposed to the law, to those markers of obedience. For today's Gentiles, that's put your trust in Jesus Christ, as opposed to putting your trust in whatever else it is you put your trust in, apart from the risen Christ. It's all about Jesus. The standard conversation might go like this in our own day. Well, if there's a God, he should let me in because I'm kind to my neighbors. I see old ladies across the road, and so on. You then say, well... No, um, actually, you're a sinner and not perfect. And then you have to take off into this kind of detail. Well, you're a sinner and not perfect, and um, uh, what you need to know that you didn't know is that you, this is what Jesus Christ does about your sin, and you're still thinking of sin as what, you, what you're not quite perfect in. Instead of which, just go for it. What does this tell us? It says the heart of obedience is trusting in Jesus Christ. So the heart of disobedience, the heart of sin, is not trusting in Jesus Christ. So to your friend who thinks they're a good person because they walk old ladies across the street, you can say, did you worship Jesus Christ as Lord today then? 
Well, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. Well, you say, right, so you're a sinner, just like I am. Now let's get into the business of finding out what God has done about sin. These are verses to plunder, because what Paul is saying is not the law, but trust in Jesus Christ. There's no point in us saying, oh, okay, well, in that case, we've got to find the law that they're following. No, the fundamental law is there in verse 16, trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are a sinner, because the first law of the great commandments was love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If you're not doing that in the person of Jesus Christ, you're a sinner. Let's get things back to the first and prime issue. Let's stop worrying about whether you were nice to your cat. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, then by definition of verse 16, you are a sinner because you're not living for Jesus Christ. The point is not that your friend will then fall on their knees and go, duh, I've finally got it. But at least you've moved the argument to ground where you can get somewhere. What matters is the attitude to Jesus, the risen and anointed Messiah sent by God to take his place as Lord of every human life. If among your general do-gooding, and I may be talking to some people here, I may be talking to those of us who know Jesus Christ and are thinking of their conversations outside, if among your general do-gooding you do not manage the doing good of worshipping Jesus as Lord, then you're not doing good at all. You're just being a hypocrite, saying that you want God to be pleased with you, but not doing the one thing God says is most important. Adapt adapt. Take these powerful workings of St. Paul as he works through, how did I get from that moment of revelation on the road to Damascus, how did I get from there to working out what it means for Jews, working out what it means for Gentiles? Follow that kind of process and work out what it means for your friends and never ever get to behave and believe like Peter here, that if you just soft sell the good news, maybe out of fear, fear of what people will think, then it will all still be okay. The truth of the gospel is that one Lord Jesus saves all of the peoples, and we must live it. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for uh, clarity of mind and urgency of heart that in our worship of the Son of God as Lord of all, we might have that core, that truth of the gospel that we can take into any circumstances and help others discover what it might mean for them. We will have relatively few Jews among our acquaintances, perhaps. Perhaps relatively few from other faiths. Most of those we encounter are like sheep without a shepherd, looking up, vaguely hoping that it will be all right one day. 
Give us that clarity of mind and devotion of heart to Jesus Christ, that out of that, by your Holy Spirit, we may see a world transformed to his glory. Amen.